Well, we're in a series we call Small Words with Big Impact. And every week, we've been looking at one word that God can use to turn our life around, to reorder our lives. Today's word is really a kind of prayer. It's a confession of personal need. And it's just the word help. Sometimes we pray it for ourselves. Sometimes we pray it for other people. The first time I ever preached at a church where people actually talk back while you're preaching, I learned that when a sermon's going well, they'd be saying, uh huh, uh huh, yes, yes. Tell me, Pastor. Tell me, Pastor. Uh, and, and then if it wasn't going so well, then they'd be saying, help him, Jesus, help him, Jesus. Yeah. I mean, I want help, but I don't want to hear that prayer because sometimes I, I'm in a position where I need help, but I don't want to admit I need help. Now, it turns out there's a bunch of reasons why we often don't ask for help. Well, come on. I don't want to look weak. I don't want to admit need. I don't want to be in debt to somebody for helping me. Now, there's one gender in particular that has a really hard time asking for help. Anybody want to guess what that gender is? <laughs> one study said that the, even in the age of GPS navigation, an average man drives 276 miles per year lost as a goose because he doesn't want to ask for directions. So we got to learn to ask for help. And the great danger is if you don't get help, what starts out as a little problem can turn into a major crisis. What started out as going over budget a little ends up going into deep debt and shame. What started out as unresolved conflict ends up maybe in tragic divorce. What started out as a problem behavior that I won't get help for can end up being an addiction. A problem with temptation or flirtation at the office can then turn into an affair. A problem with procrastination can turn into unemployment. Somebody's got a problem just being sarcastic and negative all the time and they never get help for it, then it ends up they become people that nobody wants to be their friend. So the truth is, it takes a lot more courage to say this one word, help, than it does to hide and pretend and deny and act like I don't need help. In the Bible, my help or my helper actually is one of the most used names for God. Did you know that? For example, the book of Hebrews says, so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. Now, here's the central truth of this message and why this little word help can change your life if you'll let it. We're made to live in continual dependence on God. We are. And this relationship of joyful dependence, which can look like weakness, is actually life and strength. Now, the alternative is to say, no thanks, God. I'd just rather live in prideful self-sufficiency. And it ends up leading us to utter disaster. Well, here's my story. There's a wonderful little story in the book of John, the second chapter, about a wedding. And it's just a little picture of how the kingdom of God breaks into the ordinary and becomes a favorite of artists and writers around the world. 
It teaches us how to build our lives around continually saying, help to Jesus. This is good. And we say it all the time, every day. Every time I'm on 281, help me, Jesus. Really, help me be patient. Now, thanks, brother. Jesus, Jesus is just beginning his ministry, and here's what the text says. This is on the third day at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Jesus and the disciples were also there, having been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And Jesus said, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. So his mom said to his servants, not to the son, do whatever he tells you to do. Nearby stood six stone water pots, the kind used by Jews for ceremonially washing, and each holding between 20 and 30 gallons of water. Jesus said to the servants, fill those jars with water. And they said, do I have to? That's going to be 150 pounds, 150 gallons of water, excuse me. So here's what he said to them. They filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Well, they did. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, but the servants who drew the water, they knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everybody brings out the good wine first, and then they water down the wine and make it cheaper after the guests have had too much to drink. But you saved the very best wine till now. And then the scripture says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed on him. Now, in wedding ceremonies, and I've done hundreds of them, something occasionally goes wrong. Somebody forgets their line, the flowers are the wrong color, somebody can't stop crying, the organist doesn't show up, the bride faints. I had that happen at one. Now, in this wedding, the problem is they ran out of wine. Now, if you're Baptist, you probably don't want to hear this, <laughs> at least publicly. I know what you are privately, but anyway. In the ancient world, to, well, to us, this doesn't sound like a big deal. Why is this a big deal? Because in the ancient world, hospitality was a sacred obligation. To run out of wine meant shame and disgrace for the family. It would ruin forever the memory of the wedding day for this couple. And this becomes the setting for what really is the first kind of a prayer. It's not called a prayer, I know, but that's really what it was. They ran out of wine. Now, here's a good question. What are you running out of today? Out of courage, patience, strength, hope, you know? Who are you talking to about it? Let me urge you, talk to God for help. Anyway, Mary talks to Jesus about the problem. Now, I don't know. Maybe she felt badly for the couple. Maybe she had some role to play in the wedding, like she was maybe the wedding coordinator. Doesn't say. Maybe she goes to Jesus because he showed up with that whole crowd of disciples, and that's why they ran out of wine. I know it's possible. The disciples were not terribly couth guys. They're fishermen and tax collectors. And they followed the most interesting man in the world. And maybe their motto was, Stay thirsty, my friends. <laughs> but for whatever reason, Mary comes to Jesus and she says four words. They have no wine. That's the first prayer to Jesus ever prayed. It's the first prayer and it's from Mary, his mother. 
It's not a fancy prayer. You know, beautiful prayers sometimes get on plaques, hung on people's walls and kitchen. You know, the Lord is my shepherd. Our Father who art in heaven, they have no wine. Nobody's putting that on a plaque unless it's in Napa Valley, California. (laughs) See, what matters in prayer is not so much what you say, it's to whom you say it. And just by the way, this whole story hinges on Mary's choice to do it. You know, Jesus didn't come to Canaan to do this miracle. That's not why he's there. He, he didn't, he didn't get in, wasn't part of the ceremony. He wasn't performing it. He was just hanging out there like a guest. But he did what he did because Mary asked what she asked. Her request, her prayer changed everything. Now, we know Jesus wasn't planning on doing this because of his response. He doesn't say to his mother, I know they're out of wine, Mom. I'm on it. I'm doing something. He says, woman, what has this to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, that sounds a bit cold. He doesn't even call her mom. He just says woman. There's a great New Testament scholar named Dale Bruner, and he says there's kind of a playful sparring going on between mother and son here. He says you got to picture Mary nudging Jesus with her elbow. Hey, son, they're out of wine. Woman, what is this to do with me? Now, you'll notice Jesus does not give to his mom the immediate answer she wanted. Like, okay, I'll take care of it. No, he says, my hour has not yet come. Sometimes you'll pray the help prayer. Oh, God, help, Jesus, help, and not get the answer you were hoping for. Jesus is my job. Jesus, the doctor says, it's cancer. Jesus, she's not coming back. Jesus, my little girl has lost her health. Jesus, I feel desperately alone. I don't know why it is, I don't think anybody does, that prayers sometimes don't get answered how or when we want them to. But I do know this, despair is never the correct response, ever. I believe God is and loves to be our refuge and our help no matter how any particular circumstance comes out. I'd love to have heard the tone of the voices and seen the facial expressions of this conversation between mother and son. Because the next line in this story is fascinating. His mother said to the attendants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. So if you want to see water turn into wine, if you want to see up there come down here on earth, if you want God involved in your ordinary life, in your ordinary problem, if you want to live in the presence and favor of the kingdom of God, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Lay up treasure in heaven. Care for the poor. Seek first the kingdom of God. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, sometimes people ask me, Summit, what kind of church we are? And I always respond, I'll tell you what we are. We are a whatever he tells you to do, do it kind of church. That's it. It's amazing It's an amazing statement, and Mary doesn't understand why Jesus said what he said, why he hasn't done what she asked him to do, but this is her response. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. That's the kind of church we want to be, see? Then look at how the servants respond. Jesus doesn't say anything to his mother. He turns to the servants. I mean, he turns to the servants, and she's just spoken to them, and he gives them instructions. Fill those jars with water. And then notice their response. So they filled them to the brim, right to the top. 
They didn't have to fill them to the brim. You try hauling 150 gallons of water. That's heavy. Water weighs seven pounds per gallon. If you're looking for a reason not to have to carry that much, you're going to find it real quick. They didn't understand what was going on or what was about to happen. They didn't know all about Jesus. They didn't know what he's up to. They could have filled the jars halfway or two-thirds the way up, but then they would have missed 50 gallons of miracle. They just did what good servants are supposed to do. They obeyed him with their whole heart. They did what he asked of them, and then they went beyond. A little second mile. Fill it to the brim, obedience. Boy, if we all had that, we'd have revival. It's such a great story. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Jesus said, fill those pots. They filled them to the brim. And Jesus got to be smiling because he knows what they don't know. He's about to turn H2O into Merlot. <laughs> there, there's an old saying, bring God a thimble, he'll probably fill the thimble. Bring God a bucket, he'll probably fill the bucket. So if you want to make God your helper, it's not about starting with whatever it is you want. You know, God, here's what I demand. I'm going to make my request, my litmus test for whether or not you exist, whether or not I'll trust you. No, no. It starts with whatever he tells you to do, do it. Then don't just go through the motions. Fill that sucker to the brim. Encourage somebody fully. Fill an hour of work with your whole heart. Serve somebody, maybe in your home, with delight instead of a, ah, do I have to, grudging spirit. Give a gift to God that actually represents a sacrifice on your part. Tell the truth courageously when you're probably tempted to lie. Ask God, help me, help me, help me. See, I'm asking you guys to fill it to the brim. I'm asking you guys to fill the pots this coming weekend to the brim. Don't just think about you. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, so I'm going to be here. But you don't have to be. But I'm saying, if you want to be one of those good servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Come to one service, serve in the other service. We're going to have a great weekend. We'll see a lot of people give their lives to Jesus. Other people maybe not too fond of church. Come back. You just never know what can happen when you just do what he said to do. It doesn't take deep theological training to do that. And that's the way the kingdom works. When we serve with a fill-it-to-the-brim spirit, we're the ones who get to be part of the miracle. We're the ones who get to see the water turned into wine. Well, you know, the wedding got saved. The big shots didn't know how it happened. The master of the banquet didn't know how. The groom didn't have a clue. The servants, the ones who did whatever he told them to do, they knew. So in the kingdom of God, it's the servants who know. It's those who obey with their whole hearts who know. I, I just thinking, can you imagine what they said when they got home that night? And the wife said, anything interesting happened today? Can you imagine how they followed Jesus' ministry from that day forward? He got their attention. Can you imagine how they respond to the crucifixion and resurrection? Can you imagine when they're old, old, old men, and they're talking to their children, and say, yep, Billy, Becky, I was there. I saw it happen. I got to help Jesus at the greatest wedding of all time. I did whatever he said. I filled it to the brim, and he turned that water into wine. I saw it. I was there. Yeah. Now, I used to kind of think this story was a bit frivolous in the miraculous because, you know, Jesus did some pretty weighty things. I mean, cleansed lepers, gave sight to the blind, caused the deaf to hear, 
fed the 5,000, raised the dead. Now, those are good, respectable miracles. But becoming a heavenly beverage distributor for a family who's already rich enough to have servants just doesn't seem that big a deal. But, but here's the deal. This story tells us something else about Jesus and the kingdom and why we're made to depend on God. All Mary was hoping for, just hoping to avert disaster. They have no wine. And Jesus goes way beyond averting disaster. He doesn't just make the wine. It's of extraordinary quality. He makes the best wine anybody ever tasted. And it's not just the quality that's remarkable. It is also the quantity, 150 gallons, six huge water pots. That's 150 gallons of wine. You could have one party with that. So John, yeah, I mean, how we put Jesus in a non-party atmosphere, no fun, frowny face, mean, legalistic, frown if you love Jesus. I don't know. I don't know. He's always hanging around these, the, the outcast, marginalized people. He's always doing what religious people don't want him to do. I wish he'd show back up, not, not in the second coming. I wish he'd just show back up and then blow today's church out of the water. Just, and you know who his biggest enemy would be? The church. Absolutely would be. It was then. His own family said he's lost his mind. That's his family. And we sit there in our pretty little dresses and pantyhose and a little aftershave on looking cool or whatever, or we got our hipster outfit on, and we think, yeah, I'll be cool with Jesus. He'll blow you out of the water. He's thinking so far ahead of you. His grace is so huge and big, it will stretch you till you rip. It will. John said, what Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. You know, you're just hoping to avoid disaster. He wants you to be part of his eternal kingdom. You're just a low-level servant. You got no connections. You got no money. He's got a miracle for you to be part of if you'll just do whatever he tells you to do. And I was thinking at this party, Jesus did a miracle, and I don't know, several dozen people were able to keep on drinking and keep the party going. On, on, on the dark side here, in our day, millions of people, unfortunately, have been enslaved by alcohol. It's been hell on earth to them. It's ruined lives and marriages and careers and children, but somehow they find God. And then God does the miracle of enabling them to stop drinking. And not just that, some of you have experienced this miracle. And God will use you to help save other people who have the same problem. See, whatever problem you go through, grief, addiction, anger, divorce, God will use you. He'll not only, I don't know, heal you, he'll turn that water into wine and use you to help other people. But it all starts with that one word, help. God, help me. Jesus, help me. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it in abundance and have it running out your ears and have it filled to the brim. So at Canaan, you know, we see Jesus not only shares our grief to heal them, he shares our joy to enhance them. He shares our life to make us more alive. Not dead, alive. Salvation is not just negating death and damnation. It's the elevating of life itself. God has a miracle for you. I'm not kidding. 
God has a miracle for you that is bigger and better and more extravagant than you could possibly imagine. So much more than bigger and nicer houses or new cars. One day you're going to see Jesus and you'll be like him. One day life is coming where joy and energy and confidence and friendliness and peace are going to flow like wine. But it won't be coming out of a bottle and it won't enslave anybody. It'll be like 180 proof spirit of God. A great thinker and philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, he had an observation that I've used many, many years when he thinks about the church and Christians. And here's what he wrote. He said, Christ turned water into wine, but the church has succeeded in doing something even more difficult. It's turned wine back into water. We do that without God. Without God, life is decaf. There's no... There's no carbonation in it. Without God, grace just turns into rules and regulations. Goodness just becomes pride, faith, just becomes excluding other people. We get grim, we get judgmental, we get self-righteous. Here's what the help prayer invites all of us into. Just let go of that stupid arrogance, fear, and self-sufficiency. The whole notion that anybody is above help is a total illusion. Alex Haley, who wrote the book Roots, you probably remember most of you, in his office he's got a big picture with a turtle sitting on top of a six-foot fence post. And when people would see that picture, they'd ask him, Alex, why have you got this picture here? He said, anytime you see a turtle sitting on top of a fence post, you know that sucker didn't get there by himself. He had to have some help to get up there. And I was thinking about that word and how deep it goes for all of us. Now you think this will make your hair get on fire. What? When Jesus was a little toddler, he would say that word to his mother Mary. Help me, Mommy. Don't forget, he didn't glow in the dark. He came out bloody just like every other baby. He incarnated himself into a womb. He took on human flesh and blood and bone. And so now he's a toddler, and he's a, a little child, and he has to learn. Help me, Mommy. Help me get dressed. Help me eat my food. Help me go potty. It's amazing the God of the universe humbled himself in Jesus. And the maker of the universe is asking for help. I was thinking, you know, if a parent lives long enough, things change. They end up asking their children for help. Help me get dressed. Help me eat my food. We are born needing help, and we die needing help. In between, we can fool ourselves into thinking we don't need help from anybody. But all it takes is a little age, a little health problem, a little blood vessel that doesn't work right, a little email from the job saying the job's no longer yours. And then we remember that word, help. God help. You know, a month and a half ago, I had rotator cuff surgery on my right shoulder. Should have been standard operation. But with Tramadol and whatever the anesthetic they used to knock me out, had a violent reaction, short-circuited my central nervous system, and threw me into a place I have never been in my entire life, ever, ever. I shook, I trembled, I, I felt like I'm in a coffin. If I laid down, I had to get right back up. 
I had to walk 4 a.m., 3 a.m., 2 a.m., all through the house. I could not lay down. I could not be still. I could not eat. I couldn't do anything. And with a shoulder uh, in surgery, it wasn't the problem. It was the medication reaction causing the problem. But I couldn't, I couldn't completely take a bath by myself. I couldn't dry myself completely off. I couldn't put on socks. I had to have help getting dressed. I couldn't comb my own hair. I mean, it was like Cindy had to wait on me hand and foot. I didn't, I didn't want to be alone or be left alone. Now, that sounds kind of okay to you, but you don't know me. When I was young ago, much younger than today, I never needed anybody's help in any way. But now I'm older and I'm not so self-assured. I've changed my mind. I need you like... I never did before. Help me, please help me. And I couldn't help, I couldn't fix it. I couldn't make it go away. And I remember, I'm at, I said, call so-and-so and so-and-so, ask them to come over and pray for me. I've never done that in 74 years. Come pray for me. People did. I needed help with everything. Please pray for me. Pastor John Hagee called me on the phone and said, Brother Rick, this is Pastor John Hagee. I'm going to pray for you. And I was so glad to receive it. Uh, I, I want to tell you, when you're down and you can't get up, that's when you need help. And it, it, it was wonderful. My wife has to drive me. I couldn't drive until this week. You'll notice I ain't no sling. You notice. I got the keys back to the car. I got my life back, I dress myself, I comb my own hair, I don't have to obey my wife, she has waited on me hand and foot, God bless her, and I beat the odds. The doctor says, I'm letting you go early. I said, I told you you would. But I'm, sim I'm simply saying, to be in that place where, thank God, I am connected, I have a spiritual family. Some of you just attend once in a while, you have no roots. You'll never know how important it is to have people until you're down. Solomon said, two are better than one. And a threefold cord is not easily broken, right? You need, God said it's not good to be alone. So don't wait till a crisis. Get connected, get related, build relationships now. Because you're going to have a day you need help. We all need help. I need help. And boy, I am so grateful for all my friends and doctors and people who came to see me, looked over me, and helped me get through this thing until I could be completely well. I hope I never go through that again. When we pray help with our whole heart, it's when we tell him what we're out of. When we do whatever he tells us to do, the glory of God shows up and gets revealed. Up there comes down here into our lives. Jesus says, come to me, all you who thirst. Out of your innermost being, your belly will flow rivers of living water. I think he would say today, stay thirsty, my friend. Stay thirsty. Amen. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.